In this episode, I interviewed Ryan Matanis. He's a SaaS entrepreneur and email marketing guru. In this episode, we talk about all kinds of different things, like what's a minimum viable product when you're starting out, how to create software that's consistently getting better without you having to improve it, um, how to leverage email marketing, cold outreach, things like that. Uh, really just anything, anyone who has a SaaS business or is interested in the field um, that's software as a service, this is a good episode for you. Um, he is so insightful, so interesting. His two companies are Lead Engines and API Exchange. Links will be in whatever you're watching this on. Um, and uh, he's just such an interesting guy to follow on LinkedIn. Lots of insightful and funny posts. Uh, that's where we met, actually. He's one of my favorite people that I follow. You will certainly enjoy him if you are in the know about these subjects. Um, anyways, I really enjoyed chatting to him. Thanks to Ryan for being on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do it again soon. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Yeah, got uh, another client signed up like right before got on this and uh, just doing some customer support requests. Other than that, it was a pretty slow day. All right. All right. Well, um, we're recording. Let's let's get rolling here. So, Ryan, I'm so curious. I've been wanting to talk to you for, for so long. I love, love uh, following you on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd love to know kind of what your path to get to this point looks like um and you can start as far back as you want but i i saw like when i was looking through your you know your resume it starts with like a few internships and then jumps right into cto so i guess did you know right off the bat that you wanted to be a, a founder or um you know what did that journey look like for you yeah so um i guess i got into startups because when i was doing my internship at northrop grumman um i worked there for it was about six months and I think I got paid, it was somewhere between like thirty dollars and $40,000. And I saved the company about $1.5 million um, by their own accounting. And that was before they distributed what I made to like all their other uh, factories. So in the long run, it was like tens of millions of dollars. And they made me an offer for, it was like, I think it was $70,000 a year. I think it was a little less than that. And I was kind of like, huh, um, like I'm doing something wrong here. You know, like I should have, mm. like I built the software for them. And I was kind of looking at it, I was like, well, you know, I should be the one that was taking the software to the other factories and I should be going to their competitors, right? All these other companies that are doing this exact same thing. Um, you know, the difference between me making $70,000 a year here and me making millions of dollars is whether or not I own the software I create. Huh. Interesting. So you went from from that internship to being the CTO, right? So of, of a different company. So yeah. Didn't, were you a co-founder in that role? So I came in, I was like the seventh or eighth employee um, at that company. And I took over the tech leadership because of my experience having like, I'd led the project at Northrop that I, that like saved a ton of money. Um, and I guess that was more leadership than whatever the other current CTO had. Um, and you know, that's, that being said, like I, I became the CEO of that company and then like, you know, failed. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I guess it's a success. Happens on my to the best. Yeah. Happens to the best. Right. It's probably my fault too. Um, <laughs> But, is. <laughs> right. You have to tell yourself that, right? You have to be like, okay, there were things that I could have done differently. Like the failure was because of like my decisions, you know, like mm -hmm. even if it was like, Hey, we hired the wrong guy. Like that's still, you know, your fault. Um, so hopefully, you know, right. I look at it that way. Hopefully my other co-founders, they look at it that way too. Um, they think it's their fault, not my fault, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> yeah. So I became the CTO of that company just because I guess I was willing to like jump in and I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, well, you know, um, this is something that they need 
my immediate skills. Like it was designing a hardware product and then building a software that would go in the cloud and then be interacted with through an app. And it's like, well, I, I know how to do all that. Um, but what I really wanted to get from it wasn't like, I didn't expect that to be like a million, a million dollar company. I expected to learn how to be an entrepreneur. And do you feel like you accomplished that in that role? Yeah, I feel like probably, uh, probably the day I quit that company was the day I graduated from like learning how to be, you know, an entrepreneur. So like, okay, <laughs> we're going to go try to be an entrepreneur. That's awesome. So then was lead engines the next thing to, to come out of, out of your, off your path? No. So at that point I became much better at failing very quickly. Um, and so then I, you know, I also started doing like freelance software development. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I told myself the next thing, if I wanted to learn how to build an app or like I wanted to learn how to build a SaaS product that was going to be something that you could market and sell and own, um, I might as well start by building them for people that already know how to do that and like learning by osmosis. Right. Um, cause I, I, I just learned from like the people around me. Like if you, you know, if you ever saw my grades, I guess that would be apparent. Um, and it's, uh, you know, so I started building software like SaaS applications for founders mm -hmm. that were like non-tech people and were trying to build their own SaaS. And I was learning a lot from them about like, oh, you have to do like the marketing funnel. Like, you know, that's a thought like as a developer, like you never think of is like, oh, the tutorial and like the onboarding, like, oh, they'll just do that after they buy it. Right. Like, um, yeah. And I guess that was kind of where I learned like people will pay you, you know, 10 grand, 20 grand, right? Five figures to build their app um, that other people, you know, spend like 49 bucks a month to use. And it's kind of a sales and a marketing game in SaaS, you know, like sales. When you say that, you, when you say that, do you mean like it's a sales and a marketing game to acquire the customers? I mean, it's a sales and marketing game to be successful in SaaS because mm. you can either build software for a company and they'll pay you like your rate to build software. And if you're good at building software, you can easily get a hundred, 200 bucks an hour to build software. Um, but you might spend months, you know, building a software that you're going to sell people a license to for like 49 bucks. And if you don't have somebody on your team that like knows how to sell and market it, um, then you're just an underpaid developer, you know? Fair enough. Okay. So you're, so you're, you're doing freelance work where you're, you know, developing these products for other SaaS companies and other applications. Um, and then what happened, what happened next? Where did that take you? Um, so that took me into learning how to do sales and marketing in order to like, you know, market this, like this, uh, software creation service. And that was where I first really started tinkering with marketing automation. Cause you know, if you're a developer and anytime you get into anything and somebody tells you there might be a way to automate it, that's kind of like where you start. Um, hmm. so I guess, uh, you know, we probably automate too early. Like we automated things too early. Like I think we were sending automated emails before we even sent like real human emails asking like an ideal customer if they might actually be interested in something like this. Um, we just like, you know, skipped right to it. Um, but yeah, so I did, you know, a bunch of freelance development and then the way lead engines actually happened, it came out of the freelance software development. Um, and it, I was learning a lot about like MVPs and like how to build an MVP and like all this stuff and like, what is an MVP? And I think the way I built lead engines, it came out of a realization that an MVP has pretty much nothing to do with the product. It's like a mix wow. of your customer segment, your marketing channel, um, your value proposition, and your relationship with the customer. I think that's like the whatever Andreessen or uh, that's how he describes it. Um, so just for anybody listening, MVP stands for minimum viable product. 
Um, Ryan, why don't you give us kind of like a difference between an MVP and a, and a prototype that might help people kind of understand the concept if they're not familiar? Yeah, so an MVP is like the minimum list of features and values that your customer needs to buy um, and a marketing channel that you're marketing it to them through. So an MVP could be something like taking a white label product and then marketing it through Google Ads under a new brand and like explaining the features differently. And then people are buying it and that proves that it's like minimum viable in the marketplace. It's it's MVP is a description of the product in the marketplace. Um, and it generally relates to price and customer where people find it. A prototype is just something that you built that, you know, does a thing like an engineering scientifically, you know, valid thing. Um, I guess a good example would be my the company I was a CTO of. It was a it was a health wear, like a wearable device. The first prototype was an exoskeleton airbag thing that supposedly old people would wear. And then if they fell, it would like deploy the airbags. And it's like, okay, you know, um, that's a prototype, but that's probably not something that people are like buying and like wearing in their everyday life. And it's not going to be. So it's not really an MVP. (laughs) Um, And the actual MVP ended up being just like a wearable device that would collect data. And it was like totally different. Um, you know, is the difference between something for when you crash a car and, you know, detecting that you're going to crash your car and telling you to like break or whatever. Um, I, that's kind of tangential, but yeah, MVP can be something that people buy that doesn't even exist yet. And a product, a prototype can be something you built that nobody would ever buy. Okay. So that, that feeds really nicely into this question I was going to bring up. So, you know, we talked about this over the phone. I think it was last week or the week before you made this post on LinkedIn. I was like, you know, it was a poll. It was, which is the closest to a real MVP? A built product with zero users, a landing page with 80 signups, a single presale for $97, or a mock-up at 25000 in VC backing. Um, so, A, where'd you get the inspiration to post that? What made you think to do that? And B, uh, you know, what's your answer? Um, I think I know. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think I already gave away what my answer is. Um, the inspiration, I think it was just like going on Reddit and just reading like all these posts from what I call like cargo cult entrepreneurs. And I don't know if <laughs> your users know what a cargo cult is, but basically like way back in the day is after World War II, there were indigenous people living in the Pacific and they watched the allies, you know, go out on the island and start waving stuff around and wear funny hats And then these planes came and they just delivered everything you could ever need. And, you know, being a society that didn't have that technology and they, you know, they didn't really understand how any of that worked. They thought that what the people were doing caused the planes to come, which is like kind of correct. It's just not the whole picture. And so they created like a religion around like they would make these, um, you know, like the fake things that you would wave with an airplane and like fake radios. And like they're basically trying to summon the planes to get the planes to come deliver a bunch of MREs, meals ready to eat so that, you know, they don't have to keep doing the hunter gatherer thing, or I guess I don't know where they're at right now, but, um, entrepreneurs kind of do the same thing. They like, they fill out, you know, their business with whatever, like with the secretary of state and they're like a CEO. Oh, that's me. And they're like, bam, I'm a CEO. And they're like, we need marketing. And they go on, like, they make a Twitter and they post like, Hey, come like buy this shit. And like, Oh, we have marketing. Like, okay, cool. Like, you know, we need a CTO. Like, what's he going to do? Oh, he's going to do the HTML and the CSS. And they kind of like trick themselves into like thinking that they have like, oh, I have an MVP. And it's like, what's your MVP? Oh, it's this landing page that got 80 signups. And it's like, okay, that's that's not really an MVP. 
Um, or they'll be like, oh, I, you know, we built our MVP. Like, how do we show it to people and get people to buy it? And it's like, well, let me, you know, tell you like what an MVP is. Um, so it just kind of came from like people thinking they had an MVP when they didn't really have an MVP. And mm-hmm. I tried to pick apart like what are the pieces of an MVP? Because if you have all those things, right, if you have really if you have any two of those things, if you have 80 signups in a product, you have an MVP, right? If you yeah, have because uh, one half is like validation that you have this product market fit, and then the other half is a product. Yeah, or if you have like a pre-sale and you have investor backing and a mock-up, like that's that sounds like an MVP to me, you know? Like, yeah, so, and so I, I think I'm, my thinking aligns with you that the single pre-sale, you know, does a lot, and I also think it's closest to an MVP because it's like you know, someone just paid me; I need to build this thing, so that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna you know, accelerate things quite a bit as well. But, you know, I also thought that the, the, the venture capital option was a good one too. And I wanted to hear why you, what you think about this, but, you know, a mock-up is way less on the, um, on the product side, right? Because it's quite easy to build a mock-up in most cases. Um, but venture capital funding is probably the hardest thing on that list to get, you know, I would argue. Uh, yeah. So, and that probably requires some level of market fit. So, I thought that was a close second place. What, what, do, what do you think? So, I would say that one. What you really have is a smart guy who is willing to bet money that your mock-up would be an MVP if you built it and marketed it. Um, okay. That's he thinks it's an MVP, and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. Um, fair, so fair I, enough. Yeah, I think that one's also a good candidate. Actually, A and B, the eighty signups in the product, were, were the most popular picks. Um, were they really? Yeah, and then most of the angel investors picked C. They weren't really interested in other people's investments, I guess. Huh. <laughs> I guess it's easier to downplay that if you are one. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Or they've seen, you know, hey, buy this. Oh, I think I won't. And then, you know, goes under. Like, oh, good, yeah. glad, I glad I didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so how early in the process of developing the product do you, I mean, I guess for lead engine, let's talk about it in, in a practical terms. Like when you're actually building your product and, you know, you're you're a technical guy, you were probably pretty focused on the actual development of the, the product itself. Um, what percentage of your brain power was going towards product market fit, given that you'd already had all this experience in your past, you know, learning from these other entrepreneurs? Yeah, so um, I tried to change my perspective on like the way I was thinking about technology. And by the time um, the lead engines idea was born, which I guess we'll get to after this, um, I was at the point where it was like, look, I'm not going to build my plan around the specific technology because I know that when people start talking about things like they're like, I have this idea, I can immediately tell you like, well, you would do this and you would do this and then you would get this API and you would put, you know, like I already know how to build it. Like you can show me an app and like I already know how to build it. Um, And so at that point it was like, I guess, pre-idea. I wasn't really thinking so much about what the technology would be. I was mm. trying to follow like a couple cert, couple rules. Um, one of them was I wanted to make a product that if somebody bought it and they had success, they would just come back and buy more. Like they're buying money at a discount. So like Google ads, if you run Google ads to a landing page, you spend a hundred bucks, you get 600 bucks profit out of it. Like, what are you going to do with that 600 bucks? You're going to go buy ads. Buy six times as much ads, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to do something in the marketing automation space because it was kind of like, look, I can build a marketing department and I can build a product or like 
I can build a product that does marketing, you know, and like I can kill two birds with one stone every time I wake up and decide all I'm doing all day is programming. Uh, yeah. So, so lead engines for people who are either watching this on like a social media clip or don't know, um, lead engines is a, a platform. Why, why don't I let you describe it actually before I butcher it? <laughs> yeah. Lead engines is a B2B data platform and it's a place where people buy sales data and they automatically upload it to their cold outreach campaigns. Awesome. So do you, do you use cold outreach to market lead engines? I use cold outreach to market everything I do. Um, I'm not really any good at Google ads. I think we just started turning a profit on Google ads. Um, but anytime I come up with any old random idea, I'll throw up a landing page with WordPress and I'll start sending out some cold email. Wow. So what, a what is like the sales funnel like for something like lead engines? Like, are you, are you actually like talking to the customers and selling it? Or is it more like a, like a low touch SaaS sale where it's like, they just make the purchase online. Um, it's a little bit of both, which when we first did it, it was very high touch. And I guess that'll, we'll kind of get into that. I'm trying to make it low touch. And what I'm doing now is people will sign up and then I'll call them when they sign up and I'll be like, Oh yeah, let's hop on zoom. I'll set it up for you. I'll show you how it all works. Right. And they're like, oh, this is cool. And then I get in there and I use my expertise. I get it integrated with whatever they're doing. I set it up, you know, the best way I know how. And then it's like, oh, in order for it to start running, you're going to have to go ahead and put in your credit card. Like it gotcha. wasn't, wasn't really a discovery call. wasn't really a demo. Like it's set up. It's ready to go. Like, do you want it or not? Um, That's pretty cool. Have you, th have you put any thought into hiring someone else to do that role? Or is that something that, that you wouldn't, uh, that you wouldn't want to delegate to someone else or, or what target are you moving toward? What other so, model would you like? We've, we've tried hiring people to do it. Um, sometimes it's worked. Sometimes it hasn't. Um, we had more success actually with doing like webinar style sales. Mm. and then funneling everybody into like a content class that was done by a third party content creator. And so what that tells me is just like, I don't have enough content and like educational content, which is, you know, I know like I need more stuff on the platform that tells people how to use it to like the best of their ability. Um, but for me, the reason I don't want to move away from those calls where I'm helping people set it up is because that's my experience with the customer. All of our sales, all of our marketing, all of our feature development is based on like what people tell me in those phone calls. Um, so if I, if I can get someone on zoom and I can get them screen sharing and I can get them setting up the tool, then I can see, you know, the pitfalls, right. And then I can take a note and then at night I can go and I can like come up with a feature that's going to fix that and just deploy it on live. Wow. Okay. So you that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, because we keep alluding to it, let's go back to the point where you actually started this company. Okay. Uh, we are going a little out of order here. That's my fault, but let's, okay. uh, let's keep rolling with it. <laughs> okay. So the way I started Lead Engines, I was actually doing software development and I was aware of these things that I told you about where I wanted to proc by a marketing automation product that uh, people could just buy more of. And somebody hired me or they, they reached out to talk about hiring me to uh, build them a dashboard for their lead generation agency to combine a bunch of third-party tools to build email lists. And... The downside was they only had 1500 bucks. That was their budget. And there was like no wiggle room on that. And that's not really enough to like build a solid dashboard. Like it might be if you're just like getting started, but you know, I was doing a lot of freelance software development at that point. Um, but I liked the idea, right? That was like, Hey, this checks all my boxes for a product that I'm looking to sell to people. 
and they had already had a lot of like the algorithm figured out. Like they already knew where to go pull data from and like what to clean it with and all these things and what the steps were and all that. Um, and so I told him, I was like, look, Andy, you know, 1500 bucks, that's not enough to build this thing. Um, you know, let alone maintain it, right? Like if I hand this off to you, are you going to, are you going to pay me to maintain it? Like, what if you need upgrades? What if you need changes? Like you can't afford to buy this thing. Can you afford to own this thing? And he's kind of like, you know, no. Um, he was, you know, he was kind of realizing like he wasn't, you know, he didn't have enough budget to buy this thing. And so I told him, I was like, look, I'll build this for you and I'll sell you a lifetime license for 1500 bucks. Um, but I'm going to own the products. And that means you're going to get, you know, the exact same software dashboard. You're not going to have to pay to maintain it. I'll maintain it for free and you don't have to pay to upgrade it. I'm going to upgrade it and I'm going to keep upgrading it because I'm going to be selling it to other people. And so you're going to invest the same amount of money. You're all these hidden costs are going to go away. Um, and at the end of it, you know, it'll be a better product. And, uh, if I fail, then I'll give you the product. Um, he said, okay, like, you know, why not? Huh. <laughs> like rent to own for software. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pre-sale <laughs> license for the thing that you actually thought like you needed built. But the reason it worked, like, look, if you're a company and you're looking to get a custom software dashboard built for something that you're only going to use internally, that's like the biggest possible red flag that anybody can possibly wave that it's time to come over here and build a B2B SaaS product. Um, yeah, that it literally is that single pre-sale. Yeah, they they um, they didn't know where to buy it. They had looked to buy it and they were willing. They needed it so badly that they were willing to pay me fifteen hundred dollars to build it, which is more than I guess, you know, like a Salesforce license for a year or something. Um, I didn't realize how much SaaS even sold for like B2B worlds, like fifteen hundred dollars mm. in B2B people. Like if it has no features, like they'll still buy it. It's uh, I don't know. But um <laughs> You know this, I'm sure, running an agency. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've definitely paid for things that I didn't need. <laughs> yeah. I've been on, you, know why, yeah. <laughs> you know why that is, though, why software is so expensive? Why is like, that? If you look at, like, like, if you look at, like, a sales development rep, you know, and the tools they use, they use Salesforce, which is, I think, $120 a month. Their Zoom info license is a couple hundred bucks a month. Their autoresponders are maybe 100 bucks a month. Um, and you're paying, you know, their, their autodialer couple hundred bucks a month. What are you paying him? Like five grand. And it's like the most yeah. expensive tool in his sales stack is his time. Right. So it's not like there's a budget for mm. software. Nobody's like, I'm going to go try to spend 10 grand on software, but you know, they're already spending a ton of money on paying some, paying a human being to do this. Um, so that's, that's where the crazy prices for software come from in B2B. I think it's the same thing with, with all pricing models. It's just value based. Yeah. You know, like, when, when you're thinking about things from perspective of like hiring a person, it's the same thing. It's like, is this person going to allow me to free up my time so I can grow the business in a different way or whatever other reason it is? It's, it's easier to, it's a, it's better for the business and it's better for you if they're pricing themselves at a way that allows them to continue to, to grow. That's true too. Yeah. Like uh, you're investing in them making future investments and um, we charge more than other companies that sell you lead lists. But if you have an issue, you can, you know, hit us up in the chat and it's me and I'll build a feature. Right. Um, and people like that. And I think that's a big you know reason that people buy from us. So another, another post you made on LinkedIn, uh, and this will be the last one. We won't just be reading from your LinkedIn the okay. whole episode, but, okay. <laughs> uh, another one you made, I think this one's a little older. I uh, could be wrong though. Um, 
it's you said the top three sources of value and growth in a startup are number three sales number number two marketing and then number number one recruiting yeah um and then you signed it off sincerely a software engineer yeah uh, which i think makes a statement in and of itself of what's not on that list yeah and i think that ties in really well to this whole conversation we've been having um why do you rank the, the one I'm really curious about is recruiting. Why, why did that beat sales and marketing? That kind of seems like it's coming out of left field based on everything else that we've talked about today. Yeah. I mean, recruiting is the source of sales and marketing, right? So um, you can find, you know, you can go to our startups or our find a founder, whatever Reddit community. That's what the R is. Um, you know, you can find sales and marketing consultants all day. Um, right. Consultants. Um, right. But at the end of the day, like just having the right person on your team that has the skills that you need and like, you know, the energy to go and go and go. Um, sometimes there's times when you just meet someone and it's like you just connect and just right away, like there's a ton of value being added. And that comes from recruiting. Um, if you weren't spending time looking for more talent, like to join your team, you're pretty much just limited to your own talents. So I spent, you know, a year or two trying to sell and market lead engines for the sake of learning how to sell and market. And then I found this guy, uh, his name's Mark, that he owns a affiliate marketing company. He ran a webinar for us and he promoted it to his email list and he did more sales in a day than I ever did in a quarter. Um, and I think mm. that's when, that's right around, I think when I posted that, or that's at least what inspired that post. Um, it was like, wow, if I, you know, had dialed in on this recruiting skill and I had gotten good at finding the people that could solve, you know, identifying these problems and solving these problems, that's probably more valuable than even being good at learning how to solve them myself. Absolutely. That, that makes sense to me. So I guess it, at what stage does that shift, right? Because in order to hire, you have to have money or funding. So either revenue or funding, essentially. Um, at what point does it shift for you from a presumably getting set your first sales to recruiting being the top driver of growth? Yeah. So I guess there's different outcomes from recruiting than putting someone on a W2. Um, recruiting can mean just like, I guess, you know, procurement, like you're going around looking at agencies and you're, you're hiring talent okay. or like recruiting channel partnerships. Um, so like with lead engines, we have 17, we have 17 integrations now and I pretty heavily like recruit, um, you know, people to join, uh, quote unquote, the lead engines team, which is, you know, more like a network, I guess, at this point um, from those groups. So I think probably the time to start recruiting. Um, I mean, if you have an idea or like you have a product or you have an audience or you have like any of the components of product market fit and you don't know how to get the other ones, it could make sense to start recruiting right away and look for a co-founder. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess right away, like, I almost want to say like, don't bother with recruiting. And then when you meet like the perfect person, like you should hire them immediately. But like, where does that come from? That comes from recruiting, right? Um, so if you, if you need a co-founder, you should probably start recruiting them immediately. Um, if you need talent, like, you know, I would go with agencies before hiring employees because I did, you know, a bunch of times I hired sales development reps and I tried to like train them and, you know, the deaf leading the blind kind of thing. Cause I've never worked a sales development job and like i they're like what do i do and I'm like i don't i don't know that's what i hired you for and then one of them's like <laughs> i've made that exact same mistake by the way <laughs> yeah so it's like oh i'm just gonna hire an agency that like that's what they do and you know yeah and they're like what do you need and i'm like i don't know and they're like oh perfect 
Okay, That's cool. What we teach. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. So um, recruiting, buying, yeah. Cool. Um, another thing that you mentioned to me once was uh, technical debt versus technical equity. Uh, did I get those terms right? Yeah. Okay. I would love it if you would explain that concept to people who haven't heard of it first, and then ex- explain, I guess, explain technical debt and then technical equity, and we'll take it from there. Okay, yeah. So technical debt is a well-established term, and it generally is the cost to replace an engineer if one leaves. So say the guy that built your product, he goes and quits, he gets a job at Google or whatever, and you hire somebody else, and you have to pay them for three months uh, before they even know how to change your code base. That's your technical debt. Um, it's probably best described like as a liability. Um, technical equity is something that I made up and it's pretty much just negative technical debt or it's like the opposite of technical debt in a sense. And it comes from using third-party tools. So I'm going to give you an example and then explain it. Um, a couple of years ago, I made a phone number through Twilio where you could call it, you could start talking in any language and it would come out in my site as English. I could respond in English and then it would come back out in whatever language you were speaking. And it's like, wow, that sounds really complicated. And it's like, yeah, but it was just Twilio and Google Translate talking to each other. And it's just through the APIs. I didn't even have a server. They were just pointed at each other. Um, And that means that for the last few years, Google has been going out and they've been making their translations better. And Twilio has been working really hard to make their uh, their voice lines better. And because, you know, I didn't have to update anything. It was all done through APIs. It all runs on its own. Um, Over the last couple of years, the translations have gotten more accurate. They've gotten faster. The language sounds more human. I, I didn't spend any time. I didn't spend any money. But because I was using third-party tools and their product was constantly getting better, mine was constantly getting better too. And so technical equity really comes from choosing to use third-party products that are always improving, which goes back to what you said about paying for, you know, that's a value that thing, that's something that people pay for um, compared yeah. to like building it in-house and just building up all this technical debt. So a good example of that would be when that, you know, the guy who hired you to make lead engines, essentially, when he offloaded ownership of that, he actually gained technical equity. Yeah. Yeah, which is why equity is probably the wrong word, but yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I think I came up with that It's the opposite of debt, though. (laughs) It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, he would have been in, in... The exact problem that you solved for him was he couldn't afford to have the product that he wanted. It would have been too much technical debt. Uh, So it is equity in that sense. Yeah. And my deal with him, it was um, it was no different from any other software development deal, like as a freelancer to build a dashboard for a company. It was just, you know, the financials were were slightly different. Um, yeah. It's just, so if you're already doing, you know, you're already building dashboards, right? You can you can look for this and you can do this. Oh. So what about like from a product standpoint, right? Like doing it like for yourself to have that phone number that can, you know, that's like not a product you're marketing and selling, presumably. And same thing with your client, I guess, who hired you to create lead engines. That's for his own internal use. He's not marketing that product. But would you ever use third-party um, software to, to create your product uh, in the name of technical equity? Yeah, yeah. So with lead engines, um, we advertise it as a B2B contact database. We actually don't have a database. Um, we're subscribed to a bunch of different third-party databases that do, you know, like A to B and then B to C and then C to D. And then lead engines is just like the A to G pipeline, right? Um, So we're built on, I think it's probably about 10 different tools. And then it's, you know, that's lead engines and then it integrates with like 18 other things. Um, And so 
those tools are always getting better. Like our email deliverability has gone from like 90% to 96% and I haven't actually done anything. Um, That's pretty it cool. just, it just happened like for free over like two years. Wow. You're, you've managed to eliminate your R and D costs. <laughs> yeah. It eliminated R and D costs. Um, we were able to raise the price, right? It's more valuable. And yeah, there was, there was a lot of benefits that came from it. So would you extend this term to things like the example that you were giving when we were talking about MVPs where like, you know, you, uh, you just take a white label product and you, uh, start running Google ads to it. Would that still count Is that in, in your wheelhouse of good idea, technical equity? Yeah. Yeah. That still counts. Right. Because the, the company that makes the product you're white labeling, like they're not marketing, they're just building it. Um, so anything you pay them is going towards, you know, developing or not, not all of it, but you know. It's kind of like the tech equivalent of like a referral network, you know, like you just build these referral partnerships and they bring you the business and they get better and better at that. And it comes on your end. And then, so you've kind of got double ended on this sweet spot here where you've got your referral, your, you know, your lead engines, family bringing you these leads. And then you've got, you know, the tech partners that are building the software that you use. You've really got a business that's truly more automated than, than the average business. Yeah. I mean, it's way more automated. It's like, I don't have any employees we're doing. It's like 30 to 50 grand a month in SaaS sales. Um, wow. And I'm like, it's like part-time. Um, and it's all automated. It's because every, you know, every time for the last three years, when I need to send someone an email because their payment didn't process, right. I don't send them an email saying, Hey, your payment didn't process. I go into Zapier and I find the zap that, you know, Hey, this payment didn't process and I build it into a zap and then I send it to them. And then, you know, from now on, right. When somebody's payment doesn't process, hmm. it takes me a little longer. It's, I mean, it's Zapier, so it's only a couple minutes, but every single time anything has ever happened, like, Hey, we get, you know, we, we built this email list and there's all these misters and doctors and LLCs and like all this crap in it. Um, I went out and I bought some AI stuff that, that cleans all that cleans it all out and now nobody's ever going to deal with that again it took me two or three days to fix it um and like look through different products and test it all and that's like one little tiny thing but because all i focused on was you know making sure it was 100 percent automated um we finally got there how much of this did you plan out from the start and how much of it was just opportunity plus you as a person equals this outcome oh just I'll be just, I'll be. Yeah. Okay. Like if I were to do it again, I would, I would, I would have it all figured out. Right. I would have it all figured out even beyond like what we've even talked about. Like we can go into like lifetime deals and stuff like that. Um, if, huh. you know, I could tell you what I would do if I was going to do it all again. Let's right? hear it. Yeah. Tell me, um, you know, I would go back to doing the SAS freelance development thing and I would just be using that to look for the opportunities. When I find the opportunity, I would sell the lifetime deal. I would build it. And then I would immediately deploy just a lifetime deal strategy on like product hunt and or like through affiliates and stuff, because you start with you find, OK, people are willing to pay this much money for this product, right? You have the MVP. They're paying you fifteen hundred dollars for the license before it even exists. You sell to the person, you build it and then you go to product hunt and you promote your lifetime deal for your new product. Guess how much it costs? It's fifteen hundred bucks. I don't know what product hunt is. I think I'm missing a key. Oh, uh, it's uh, integration here. <laughs> so product product hunt is a platform. It's kind of like Indiegogo or Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, basically, you know, everybody that when they think SaaS, they think subscription and they think right. like, I'm going to sell at 50 bucks a month, you know, hundred bucks a month. Um, 
But if you're selling subscriptions, like monthly subscriptions, it can be harder to grow because your payback period can be several months. So say you charge 50 bucks mm. a month, your customers on average stay for a year, you're making 600 bucks a customer, right? If it costs you 200 bucks to get a customer, that means every four months, you're able to turn over you know, your marketing money again and get a new customer. If you're selling lifetime deals, right? Your payback period is like when they buy it, it's like instant. And then you just gotcha. go back to selling lifetime deals. And the reason you know you can sell lifetime deals is because the way you sold this thing in the first place was a lifetime deal. <laughs> That's interesting. It kind of like reduces, it removes the assumption of what you, your lifetime value of the customer is going to be. You just, it's a, it's a given. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, once you do that, you get hundred lifetime sales and then you have all your money for advertising and marketing. And, um, so that's what we did, right? We did the lifetime deals and that built us up the capital that we needed to start running pay-per-click ads. Did you ever do venture capital? Like, or did you ever like raise money for this? I never tried to raise money for this. Um, it's always been like bootstrapped. And what we did instead of raising funding or what I did instead of raising funding was I offered done for you services, like agency style services. Um, going back, you know, magic number, 1500 bucks. That's, you could, there's something in the B2B world you can charge 1500 bucks for anything. Um, but we were doing done for you cold email campaigns and we would send them, you know, 3000 emails, 1500 bucks. And uh, even when the product barely worked, all it could do is build email lists. There was no like useful user interface. Um, this meant that there was constantly being money coming back, you know, into the value proposition of the product. Interesting. So I think a lot of people when they're trying to start a company, particularly non-technical people, I would say, mm -hmm. but um, a lot of people when they're trying to start a company, uh, they really put a lot of emphasis on the pre-stage, like the planning, um, making a business plan, putting together, I don't know if a pitch deck falls into that same category because it's kind of like centered around raising funding. But um, what do you think about that? Do you think there's any merit to a business plan? Yeah, I think no plan ever survives first contact with uh, the customer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so does that, does that make it useless or do you think there's still a value, value in it? I mean, I'm sure that if they know more about business and sales and marketing than I do, I'm sure their plans are useful. Um, like when I started Lead Engines, if I was spending my time planning, I don't even know what the hell I would have thought I knew, you know? <laughs> so I just did it. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Um, and that's another reason why I really like the the $97 in, in pre-sale option to go way back, just because it, it eliminates that variable for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's for developers, especially it's like, you know, if your expertise isn't like sales and marketing, then that's where you should start, right? Like if you're the king of sales and marketing, then you should probably start by going out and finding like a tech person and making sure that whatever you're going to sell is going to be feasible. Tackle um, the thing you're most afraid of first. Yeah. 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 And then just like line it up where it's like, Hey, if I can figure out like this product market fit thing and all I have to do is build the products, you know, like for me, that's like a straight shot home, you know, like for you, that's probably like, you probably like, well, I can, you know, the product market fit thing. Um, I don't know how to build it. Right. So start with what you're bad at, because if you start with what you're good at, you know, you'll mislead yourself into thinking that, you know, you'll, you'll get trapped by the things you don't know. You don't know. Um, that's super true. I think that's a, that's such a, a common trap for people to fall in when they're starting something new is that they'll focus all of their energy on the thing that they already know how to do instead of, instead of what you're proposing. And I think that's where people get stuck. 
Um, so what do you, what in that, in that light, you know, since you were the technical guy, how do you go about dem getting demand generation going for your company? Like I know the, the lifetime value model was, was one that you wish you had done, but how would you get started yeah. if you were to do it? I mean, with the lead engine story, right? The guy, the demand generation, it like fell into my lap, you know, they, uh, mm -hmm. they hit me up and they said, I, weird thing. Um, they hit me up and they were like, Hey, we need this product built. We have this much money. We need this software to exist. Um, so I guess that was like my first hint, you know, of the demand generation. And like, if you were going to, if you were looking for something to build and you were going to start with demand generation, that might be a good place to start is just being a freelance developer because then you get to mm. hear like all those amazing ideas. Um, I think I meant more of like, how did you, like you, I got your first sale down, but like got it. Yeah. after that, how did you turn it into like a systematized, you know, I got leads coming in every day. Yeah, uh, it was, you know, using the product to do cold email. So the product itself is a cold email mm -hmm. automation platform. And my logic was uh, going back to killing two birds with one stone product and marketing. Um, I was setting up my own cold email campaigns. I was using it to market for myself. People would get on a demo. I would just show them the results I was getting for myself. Um, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't really have customers yet, but I built this thing and it was like last month and got me 20 <laughs> meetings and I don't know how to sell it, but you know. You want to buy it? <laughs> um, it's like its own proof of concept. Yeah, they're like, "Where can you show me a demo?" Like, You're in the demo, right? It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so a couple people like bought on from that. They're like, "This guy that doesn't know anything, he got a meeting with me." Like, you know, what's what's this thing he's using? Uh, <laughs> so what? I, I just to talk about cold email because I'm a bit of a like a marketing nerd. Like, what's you probably know more about cold email than the average person, which is I, why I'm. I do now. Yeah, I do now. <laughs> yeah. So, so what works and what doesn't work? Like what, what kind of, um, offers, I guess is what I would say. Like, how do you get your foot in the door? Yeah. Cold email. Yeah. So the first thing is you have to be marketing or you have to be emailing someone who's like in the business of reading and responding to external email, which is like what, but like if you're emailing pharmacists or like doctors or plumbers, it's kind of weird or like teachers, you know, um, mm -hmm. they're, they're probably being told not to respond to external email. But if you email like, you know, a sales director, salespeople, owner, founder, CMO, someone that has like a forward facing role or would normally work with vendors, uh, cold email is probably a good option. And in order to get the most responses, um, you know, or the best responses, it's all about relevance. So like, I, I, I mean, I used to, but not anymore. I wouldn't, I, I don't send out an email that says, uh, Hey, do you need B2B leads? Like we'll get you B2B leads, B2B lead gen company, get, get leads and just like say lead gen over and over. So they, you know, get the point. Um, what we would do is we would email recruiters and we'd be like, Hey, are your clients hiring now? Cause if they're not, they might as well not even be clients. Um, what if I could get you meetings with hiring managers that are looking for candidates and roles that you staff right now? And then people respond to that because they're like, wow, this human being that like knows what I do sent me an email offering something somewhat enticing. Um, as opposed to like this robot that has no idea what I do feature dumped me. <laughs> I feel like that's, it's really interesting and it kind of like a counter to the current entrepreneur culture and marketer culture of like everyone's talking now about you know content marketing and leading with you know giving instead of like Gary Vee's thing you know jab 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 right hook you know, you're just starting with the right hook and you're just punching a bunch of people and hoping that one lands yeah <laughs> so. I have an I have an email formula we will we'll take their case study we'll take a client's case study and we'll just say uh 
you know, we'll email everybody that looks exactly like the person they worked with. So if they worked with food companies with 11 to 50 employees and they worked with the marketing director, we'll email the other marketing directors at food companies with 11 to 50 employees. It'll be like, hey, if I could prove that I helped another food company generate 60% more revenue in three months, would you have 15 minutes to talk about doing it again for you? And that's the entire email campaign. Like, you know, there's a signature, uh-huh. but that's it. There's no follow-ups, like nothing like that. And you get a couple percent of people responding, you know, they're paying 10 bucks a lead. It's like a deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, you don't need to do like these lengthy content funnels. Like, I mean, those people are selling you content funnels, right? That's the same reason the cold email automation company is like, no, no, no. You need to do a sequence that's 28 days long and, you know, do it on our product with a 14 day free trial. And then after around day 21 is when people will start buying things from you. Are you sure? You know, (laughs) (laughs) then why isn't your trial 21 days? (laughs) Yeah, it's a a very specific timeline. Um, (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, So you don't you you don't recommend any follow ups. You just do one blast. And if they don't respond, that's the end. We'll do two or three follow ups. But um, okay, like tops. Um, But, you know, you don't even want to talk to the lead that you had to email eight times. Right. Yeah, it's true. They're not that interested. (laughs) Do you guys actually just curious now this maybe this isn't uh, interesting to listeners but like do you guys actually still do the the content creation and help people like put together their emails sometimes usually what i have now is i have a bunch of guides and so i'll get on the discovery call and i'll ask them like do you have like any case studies and then they'll tell me about the case study and i'll help them set up the search so they can get the exact customer match and then i'll send them a guide i'll be like this is how you write a case study or a cold email based on your case study that we're going to send to those people that i just found for you Mm. um and then you know, they usually write a better email than I do at that point because they know what people care about. So is a, is being a fit for cold email more about the person that you're trying to target than what you're trying to sell? Like, for example, is there specific niches that do really well with cold email, like service industry or SaaS or, or whatever, versus is it the person, like what you were talking about earlier with someone with an outward facing role? Dude, I would tell you that, but I've seen people do the craziest things. Um, like I saw some guy, he showed up and he really wanted to buy lead engines. And I was like, what are you selling? And it was like backpacks with like a dog on them, a picture of a dog. And I was like, dude, this is a B2B product. And he was adamant and he bought it. And then he started emailing like veterinarians and dog trainers and he got his product out there. Um, right on. Yeah. And I would have told him, you know, I did tell him, I was like, sir, you, you don't want to do that. And he did it anyway. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Other times, you know, I tell people you definitely want to do this and, you know, maybe it doesn't. Um, but, you know, uh, this time. <laughs> so, interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I would tell you that there's definitely some niches that are better than others. Like founders are really easy to get to respond with cold email. Um, and when you start emailing people that are like sitting in a cubicle, just like thinking about what's for lunch, like, you know, they're not going to get excited enough to respond probably. Right. Um but like, dude, founders, especially on like a Sunday, you know, like you're sitting there looking for something to do, looking to tell somebody to do something mm-hmm. and somebody's like, gets you up and why not? Interesting. Are there any other, like, uh, is that the only way that you sold, sold lead engines or are the, I mean, referral partners are a big one too. Um, but are those, are those your two main mechanisms or is there anything else that you use? Um, we're going really big through channel marketing. So difference between referral marketing and channel marketing, referral marketing is like other users of your products telling people to go buy your products. Mm. Um, and so we had a lot of growth with referral marketing and channel marketing is what we're going after now. 
And so that's kind of, you know, we have 17 integrations. So I've spent the last couple months reaching out to the CEOs of all these different companies like Reply.io, Lemlist, Mailshake, um, Woodpecker. Um, so if you use any of those products, we integrate with it. Um, I've been reaching out to them to set up co-marketing stuff. And my pitch is basically, you know, hey, you sell people a cold email automation software. What's the next thing they need, right? They need a cold email list. What happens if they never put in a cold email list during your free trial? Oh, well, then they cancel because, you know, they didn't use it. Or what happens when they run out of people to email? Like they're done, they're going to cancel. So mm-hmm. lead engines, right? We automate the list building. They get new leads every day. It's really easy to set up. You should, you know, anybody that gets a free trial and needs leads, you should send them to us. Uh, we'll give them leads. They'll convert on your free trial. And if they stay with us, then they'll stay with you longer because they never run out of leads. So why would they cancel? Very interesting. Okay. So an equivalent in my industry, I have a web design agency would be, I would go to like other marketing agencies and that maybe do just Facebook ads and be like, Hey, when your clients, you know, when they're running Facebook ads to terrible websites, like it's not going to work for you. So, you know, partner with us like that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, Another question I had for you that I wanted to get to on this call, and let me know if you're running out of time. Um, but another question that I had for you, what are you doing with API Exchange? I saw that link and I, I didn't know you were associated with it until then. Oh yeah, so that's uh, that's my new project. Um, okay. That one's doing a little over like a thousand bucks MRR. That's my new SaaS. Okay. Um, so it's like just getting off the ground. And what API Exchange is, is a platform where you can take any piece of software and then you can immediately put it up behind an API and start selling paid licenses to people. Um, so if you had a script laying around, for example, that would take someone's, oh, I just made one. It was takes their first name, their last name, and the name of the company they work for or used to work for, and it finds their LinkedIn profile. And someone needed a list enriched. Um, so I threw together uh, you know, this script. It's like 40 lines of code. And I put it on API Exchange, and I sold him access to it. Um, and so I continued to own the software and he just paid for access. And uh, if you have any piece of software laying around, um, you can really quickly turn it into an API, put it on API exchange, start selling it. We handle all the payment processing, you know, rate limits on the accounts, all that stuff. Um, we put it on Zapier, we put it in like Python and Node.js so people cool. can install it with one line. And it's a way to instantly bring your new SaaS product to market. Or if and you... Yeah, you are consistent with your principles in business. This I am. Cool. <laughs> I am. And so where it actually came from, where the idea actually came from, um, or I guess the first use of it, I don't know where the idea came from, but the first use of it was someone needed access to some of the software, like the underlying software that we use to build lead engines, right? Remember I explained it's nine tools, 10 tools integrated together, mm-hmm. A to B to C to D. And so they're like, hey, we need like this E to G section. Okay. So, you know, I spin up an endpoint on API exchange. Um, send them a link, sign up, it's 500 bucks a month. Um, and that covers all my costs for the underlying tools that it's built out of. So I went from having these tools that I was paying money for to build lead engines out of to, I'm, you know, combining and reselling them on API exchange and I'm using them for free. That's sweet. So is API exchange something that only you can sell your soft, your software on, or is it for anybody who just wants to exchange their APIs? It's for anybody that has any software laying around in any language. Um, they can really quickly turn it into a hosted API. They can start selling it to anybody. Um, they can deploy it on Zapier. They can deploy it on NPM or PyP, which is where people get software. Um, free trials, all that stuff. 
So if you have any old piece of code laying around that does something cool, um, might be worth uh, throwing it on API Exchange. It's free except for processing fees. Wow. Well, I don't know anybody who you know has quite a quite a philosophy like you do about business, and I really admire it. Are there any uh, other business people or companies that you like aspire, like you you know look up to or admire? Um, are there any other people who you think are doing it really well? Um, I think there's a lot of people that are doing it really well. Um, I would, you know, I don't like have like a business idol or I'm not like some like Grant Cardone fanboy or like whatever people are doing these <laughs> that days. That would be pretty off color for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like, I like Elon. I think it's cool that Elon can like buy a stock and then he can go on Twitter and say that like he bought that stock and then it just goes up because he bought it, you know? And so I wish I could do that. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that would be what I, you know, that would be my job, right? That's pretty uh, cool. <laughs> But, um, I mean, Elon has his own philosophy, right? Um, go get that, you know, government backing and go in some industry that's, you know, giant world problem and subsidized heavily. And, um, so I think what he's doing is really clever. I think what Bill Gates did with, uh, the Microsoft and like the user generativity stuff. I don't know if you know anything about the origins of Microsoft. Nothing. All right. So long story short. Way back in the day, before there was Microsoft, there was a bunch of different computer manufacturers. They all had their own operating system. And when you made an application, um, you had to put it on a, you know, each operating system. So you'd have to make it for every single different thing. And it was a huge pain. Um, and so what Bill Gates did is he made Microsoft and then every, or really he made DOS and all the other manufacturers, computer manufacturers, they would put their, they, they would use DOS as their operating system. Um, and then that meant that the people that were building applications only had to build them for DOS. So instead of having to build the software application a hundred times to get it on all, you know, hundred different types of devices, uh, he, he created the Comet framework and the idea kind of similar to Stripe, actually, it's similar to Stripe and it's similar to Salesforce. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Because if, when you think about Salesforce, it's 120 bucks a month and it's really a glorified Google sheet. Right. Um, but it has this like massive ecosystem of products that are like built into it. And the value of Salesforce comes from, I think, being the ecosystem. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, that explain why they're buying everything. So that, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Are there any, like, just a question that I like to ask people kind of towards the end. Are there any books or podcasts or any that you recommend to entrepreneurs, software developers, anyone? Yeah. Um, I really liked Chaos Monkeys. I forget the name of the author. But it's the story of some guy that created an advertising product and he sold it either to Twitter and went to Facebook or he sold it to Facebook and went to Twitter. He went through like Y Combinator and I think it really killed like the glory of the incubator accelerator program for me. Because like I came out of, you know, the university world where it's like the incubator and the accel you go, you go from mm -hmm. the college entrepreneurship, you know, to the incubator and then the incubator, you know, introduces you to the VCs and really like you're working for free to build this business like that maybe they'll invest in. And then like the college just wants to like take photo ops and stuff. And huh. um, I think like I had kind of figured that out, but it wasn't really till I read Chaos Monkeys till I was like, oh, like the investor isn't your friend, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So are you, are you like hardcore against taking investments then or is it just not the path that was for you? Um, I'm not hardcore against it there. 
were reasons that um, with lead engines, I was like, I was skeptical, I guess. Hmm. And they have actually sort of started to go away. So I may be raising money this year. Um, okay. So I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. I think the plan definitely. is like, yeah, we'll probably, if we can like, if I can like maybe double or triple the revenue, then I can do some things that I need to do in order to be ready to raise money. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and I'll, we can talk about that later. I, I uh, definitely want to hear more about it. Yeah. But I know that can be sensitive to talk about on online. That one. Um, yeah, that one is. <laughs> <laughs> um, dude, this has been so cool. Thank you so much for, for this. I learned so much. Uh, I hope the listeners do too. Um, where, where can people find you? I know your URLs aren't spelled, uh, straightforward. There's, there's a dash in there somewhere, right? Yeah. So there's always a dash. Maybe there won't be by the time, uh, that's developing, but, um, <laughs> when you get that VC money, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's lead hyphen engines.com and engines is plural. And then it's API hyphen exchange.com. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, and I also recommend everyone connect with Ryan or follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, my definitely my favorite person I follow on LinkedIn, which Very is I, insightful, yeah. <laughs> funny. It's like the first thing I say to you every time we talk. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I believe the LinkedIn is also LinkedIn slash in slash Ryan hyphen Matonis. If you're looking, you're into hyphens. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll chat again soon. All right. Thanks, Max.